years ago, before the horrendous situation currently engulfing Israel, Palestine, and the Gaza Strip, I visited the area of Capernaum in northern Israel, which is the site of our story from Mark 1 today. A fish market and frontier post beside the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' time, Capernaum became Jesus' hometown. We often hear about Bethlehem or about Nazareth or somewhere else, but actually Capernaum was Jesus' hometown and the scene of many of his miracles. It was also the home of the first disciples Jesus called, the fishermen Peter, whom I'm going to call Simon Peter today, and whom and his brother Andrew, James and John, and the tax collector Matthew, who collected tax, taxes in the customs office. In this town of Capernaum, Jesus worshipped and taught in the synagogue, which is right beside the area I'm going to talk about today, where his teaching made a deep impression on the local people, because unlike the scribes, he taught with authority, according to Mark 1. In the same synagogue, Jesus promised the Eucharist in his I am the bread of life preaching. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And Jesus also healed many people of illness, including Simon Peter's mother-in-law and the daughter of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. And Jesus presented, uh, pronounced and presented a curse on the town of Capernaum, along with the towns of Bethsaida and Chorazin, because so many of the inhabitants refused to believe in him. After Jesus' time, 2,000 years ago, Capernaum fell into ruin. A third century report described the town as despicable. Its numbers, it numbers only seven houses of poor fishermen, it was later resettled, but again fell into disrepair. Today, an ultra-modern Catholic church perched on eight sturdy pillows hovers protectively over an, um, an excavation site. Perhaps some of you may have visited Capernaum. Raise your hands if you visit. One or two have, I can see. Yes, that's great. It's believed to have been the site this, what I'm going to talk about is the site of Simon Peter's house where Jesus would have lodged. I'm just going to show the first picture. This, is, this um, picture shows the excavation site with the modern church over the site. Uh, archaeologists believe the house was a small complex with dry stone walls and roof of tree branches covered with straw and earth and a fairly flimsy construction at that, easily breached to lower a paralysed man on a mat down, as described later in Mark 2. Excavations show that one room in this intertwined complex had been singled out since the middle of the first century, and graffiti's been scratched on its plaster walls, and they refer, the graffiti refers to Jesus as Lord and Christ in Greek. It is suggested that this room was venerated for religious gatherings as a house church. If so, it would have been the first such example in the Christian world. In the 5th century, an octagonal church was built around this venerated room, and the present church, dedicated in 1990, repeats that octagonal shape. And the next picture 
Uh, if you could just turn on to the next picture, please. We got that one. Yes, that's good. That, that next picture shows inside the church with a glass um, floor where you can look down into the room where what I'm going to talk about actually happened. So in the next picture, please. We have the next picture, please. No, back one. And this, this one is shows you the complex, the dry stone walls with... Um, the room that I'm going to talk about is under the church. I give this description and these pictures for a reason. So often we hear the stories from the Bible and it's difficult to actually imagine what it was like 2,000 years ago where events took place. In the little backwater we read about today, to be able to picture the scene where the event took place elevates the story beyond the story itself to the time and place of a real event. So after healing in the synagogue, which is right close to this area that's shown in the picture, earlier in the day, we're told by Mark that Jesus returns to Simon Peter's house. There lies Simon Peter's mother-in-law in the grip of a fever. This is no small matter in the ancient world. A fever was not only debilitating, but was often a symptom of a condition that would lead to death. We know nothing from Mark about the fever, its intensity, its duration, or its cause, but we do know that a valued member, a valued family member, was unable to be up and about her work. So her calling had been taken from her by an illness. Jesus simply raises her up, in Mark's direct and uncomplicated style, he says, and the fever left her and she served them. The verb's interesting. Simon Peter's mother-in-law is raised up by Jesus, a word that takes on a powerful meaning in Mark's gospel. The word suggests that new strength is imparted. That's where the second interesting verb comes into play. Simon Peter's mother-in-law served immediately after having been raised. The verb decano means to serve rather than to be served and characterises the Christ of God. It is also to serve that characterises his disciples. Simon Peter's mother-in-law is far from being an exemplar of a pathetic, unliber unliberated woman for whom serving men is her whole life. Rather, she's the first character in Mark's gospel who exemplifies true discipleship. Peter's mother-in-law is an excellent case to focus our attention on discipleship. It was her calling and her honour to show hospitality to guests in her home. Cut off from that role by an illness, cut off from doing that which integrated her into her world, she was no longer able to engage in her calling. Jesus restored her from that fever. It's very important to see that healing is about restoration to community and restoration to a calling and not just restoration to life. For life without community 
and calling is bleak indeed. Time and again, Jesus' ministry involves restoration of those cut off from community to a full role in the community. Those who have been faced or overcome illness in their own time will understand the joy of simply being back as a participant in the ordinary processes of community life. Truly, there's nothing ordinary about life in community. Jesus wields the power of God Almighty to bring about participation. It is God's will for creation to be serving in community with others. When I hear the word discipleship, I can't help thinking about those old Chinese martial art movies in which the master, or the Shifu, takes a few young men under his wing. While these men go to him to learn their fighting skills, that's not all they pick up. They spend many years living with the master, observing how he lives, how he handles his problems, and how he manages his relationships every day. They come to understand his motivations, his passions, and his values. In fact, they grow so close to him that they are not only considered the master's own sons, but also his representatives. Maybe you've had such a mentor in your working life, or in life even today, or a person who exemplifies just such a wise teacher. As a result, the disciples of the Shifu, who typically start out as impulsive, know-it-all upstarts, always spoiling for a fight or an argument or to gain advantage, inevitably become wiser men who prefer to resolve conflict and challenges peaceably. That's when the master can stand back and look at his followers and say, ah, you finally understand what I've been teaching you. Perhaps that's what is meant for each one of us to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. Discipleship is not a task, and it's not a course, but it's a relationship, one in which we're allowed to make mistakes as we observe, as we learn, as we grow. Jesus isn't looking for performance or top students. Rather, he wants us to stay close by his side while we lend a helping hand to others and connect and share resources such as our time, our gifts, and other resources with others. That's why his call to his first disciples was simply, follow me. When we follow Jesus and extend God's love, our vision, as you'll see on the panels at St Barnabas Church, and are humbly focused on the needs of others, we come to truly and often very slowly become more and more like our master. As Simon Peter's mother-in-law lay on her bed in the tiny drywall house, her desire to serve and follow Jesus was activated the moment Jesus raised her from her sickbed. As fellow disciples following the same master, we are on the same journey. Each one of us Every one of you is a part of God's team. No matter if you lead an organisation, 
you offer talents within the church, you reach out to someone who's experiencing loneliness or anxiety, of which I can assure you there are many in our community, or you serve in some other way. God has already chosen each one of us, actually, to be on his team. How did he choose each one of us? You may well ask. He looks at our heart, not at how talented we are or how good we are or what we've done in the past. He looks to see if we trust him, if we have a heart of trust that leads to a serving heart. God is not looking for us to be uber-talented or the best person out there or beautiful or rich or any of those things. All he's looking for is people with a heart that can trust him and serve others, just as Simon Peter's mother-in-law served. When we consider all that Jesus has done for us and the heavenly blessings awaiting us, we should be eager to serve on God's team. If someone once said, you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. We show our love of God by serving others. And at the beginning of this year, we can each reflect on how we can actually serve others in a world that surely needs people who have a heart to serve. That is what Simon Peter's mother-in-law was able to do once Jesus raised her from her sickbed. Her example is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago in that small town of Capernaum. And to God be the glory. Amen.